Thank you. Um, sorry, I have actually retitled my paper. So just to confuse you all, um, when I was looking over it, I thought, really, I'd better give you all a warning that there's a bit of Judith Butler coming. Um, and I decided instead to call it Francis Bacon's Gender Trouble, um, with that lovely large breast of his there. Now, um, against the tide of art history, Francis Bacon predominantly painted men. This is something that's been noted by a lot of different scholars. In particular, art theorist Ernst van Alphen, um, who wrote for our catalogue, has pointed out that, and I quote, there are few painters in the modern period of Western art who have so dedicated themselves to representing the male body. Um, Bacon's paintings are known for their distortions and fragmentations of that body. They often depict men wrestling, struggling and grappling with one another. And the image you're looking at now is a good example of that. It's, um, it's quite a faithful reproduction in some ways of Edward Mybridge's photographs of men wrestling from the 19th century. But as you can see, Bacon has displaced the figures from the situation of wrestling to a bed and thereby enacted a kind of transition. Um, so they have a paradoxically erotic dimension um, because they've been transmuted from wrestling into coupling or fucking men. Or, to call in another one which has been looked at a lot today, um, Study of the Human Body, 1949, which is one of those great works um, in our exhibition. I think it holds a special place because it's Bacon's first known painting of a nude. And it's also possibly his most tender and erotic painting of a nude. As um, Nicholas just pointed out, it deals a lot with the idea of entering into an unknown space and is undoubtedly the site of a homoerotic fantasy. It's rendered with a real tactile sumptuousness, but Tony covered that really well in his introductory lecture. So, given the emphasis on the male figure in Bacon's paintings, it might seem really strange to do what I'm about to do, which is to consider his paintings of women. <coughs> Yet Bacon, who disliked his father and was very close to his childhood nanny, had close relationships with a number of fascinating and unconventional women, and many of these became the subject of portraits. Among these, Henrietta Moraes, um, who was a friend whom he painted nude on several occasions. And in fact, it's arguable looking at Bacon's paintings overall that she really was the primary female nude model and that she represents in some ways the idea of a feminine or effeminate sexuality in Bacon's work because he essentially had very, very, I mean, he worked from images of lots of different nudes, including Mybridge, but these are images that he had commissioned of her nude, which became the basis of so many different paintings, as we'll see. Um, his paintings of her naked body, sprawled on a bed, often derived from this series of photographs, um, may be read as erotic. To me, they raise some really fascinating questions about how Bacon, a homosexual man who had very little experience with women as sexual beings, um, engaged with and represented the sexuality of one of his close female friends. She obviously, I think, wasn't the object of any kind of sexual desire on Bacon's own part. But rather than being a footnote to the mainstream of Bacon's scholarship or to any kind of study of Bacon's paintings, I think that the relatively few paintings that Bacon made of Henrietta Moraes or of nude women in general embody a greater truth about gender and sexuality in his work. And this is essentially, very basically, that gender is not at all clear-cut. In a way, Bacon's paintings of nude women give us great insight into how he painted the male body and how he understood gender, sexuality, and possibly his own homosexuality. So in this paper, I'll explore Bacon's treatment of gender through the prism of two related paintings, both of them in our show, Lying figure on the left, I think it's your left, yes, 
um, and studies from the human body. Line figure is the earlier one, and studies from the human body, if you can't read my rather small captions, is subsequent. I'm going to examine the ways in which gender are subtly confused in these works and the relationship between two of the figures in, this, in these two paintings. Drawing in feminist discussions of the male gaze in art history, this analysis will also explore the crossing between two genders, which to my mind is a really provocative aspect of Bacon's work overall. Far more than, ever, than Bacon himself ever admitted, these paintings really unsettle the binaries of feminine, masculine, and queer straight. On the question of what Bacon would or would not have admitted to, and I'm digressing slightly here, I want to make a brief comment about research methods in this paper. Um, this is something that Bacon himself was very averse to, the idea of biographizing his life or psychologizing his work, reading his work through his own life, even though he told a lot of stories about his life and was kind of quite self-mythologizing, one would say. So, you know, anecdotal evidence, however, leads us to, breathe, to um, believe that Bacon's tendency to cross-dress supports a reading of his work that is crossing genders. Certain stories about Bacon's life and his sexual practices particularly that famous story told early on about him being kicked out of home um, after a dispute over his homosexuality. My understanding, Barbara, was it was because he was caught wearing his mother's underwear. Um, when we look at stories like that, it's really hard to ignore the anecdotal evidence of his life in relationship to his understanding of gender in his work. When we look at paintings that actively blur the boundaries between masculine and feminine, these biographical details inevitably hover in the background. At the same time, we have to be really careful with this as a methodology. Bacon's understanding of the binaries between feminine and masculine and of queer and straight is difficult to analyze as he rarely discussed it in interviews. While flagrantly homosexual and taking a lot of risks in the way that he represented it in his work, um, he really avoided the activist politics about homosexuality that emerged in the 20th century. Um, and he cheekily suggested that he preferred homosexuality when it was illegal because it was more fun. But to return to the female body, David Sylvester, who is the great scholar on Bacon's work and conducted the interviews that we've all relied on so much in this research, said that in Bacon's work, and I quote, the female bodies tend to be paradigmatically female. Curvaceous and well-fleshed, Bacon's lack of personal erotic interest in naked females did nothing to prevent these paintings from being as passionate as those of the male bodies that, that obsessed him. End quote. In turn, the curator Chris Stevens, who did the wonderful show at the Tate, said that some of Bacon's images of mores in particular, and these are both images that are drawn from Henrietta, um, acknowledge the sitter's raw sexuality and show her as sexually alluring but dangerously open. I'm quoting here. Um, though not exactly violated, there is nonetheless something pathetic in her own apparent sexual abandon. End quote. He speculated that this derives partly from photographs that informed the paintings. Study of nude with figure and mirror is the name of the previous image, but this is um, a photograph of Henrietta Mores, and it's one of a series. There are a lot of different images that were found in Bacon's studio, which Barbara can attest to maybe at question time. Um, these photos, commissioned by Bacon, were taken by his friend John Deacon, who was the Vogue photographer we mentioned earlier. And they show Maurice adopting revealing poses. We'll get to some of the more revealing poses later at the moment. I just wanted to give you more of a portrait image of her. Um, 
they are not, they're not the only influences on Bacon's painting. So as Nicholas said, and as all of us have attested to, actually, you know, Bacon folded together many different sources, drawing from the canon of art history. His paintings in general have been linked to art historical images, from the odalesques of the French neoclassicist, classicist Ongre, Ongre, Ankh, I don't know, sorry about that, um, to Degas' After the Bath, woman drying herself, with which Bacon curated into a show that he hung in Britain in one of the major galleries, and Picasso's Demoiselle d'Avignon. We can't talk about these paintings from art history without talking about the tradition of the female nude, which puts women on display for the privilege of the male gaze. Now, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to get a bit old school on you here. Um, John Berger, who we all studied in our you know, first ever course at university, I'm sure, famously asserted that in visual culture, women have learned to see themselves from the outside as objects for erotic possession. In the tradition of the nude, the subject, and I'm quoting here, her own sense of being in herself is supplanted by a sense of being appreciated as herself by another. In her seminal text, Vision and Difference, Griselda Pollock, really old school, argues convincingly, I think, that femininity is not the natural condition of female persons. It is a historically variable ideological construction of meaning for a sign woman, which is produced by and for another social group, which derives its identity and imagined superiority by manufacturing this specter of this fantastic other. So notions of femininity and equally of masculinity have been constructed within and perpetuated through representations of the female nude. I think we can probably all agree with that and move on. Given Bacon's relationship to some key paintings of art history, and I have to stop here and point out that Bacon once said um, to a critic, you won't understand my paintings unless you understand the Rockaby Venus. So that's a pretty good example of some of the images that he was drawing from. And of course, that painting was famously defaced by a suffragette activist. Um, this whole reliance upon art history and his intimate relationship to it does give us, give rise to some interesting questions, namely, how should we interpret his paintings of nude women? In his analysis of Bacon's relationship to masculinity, the cultural theorist Ernst van Alphen takes up the feminist critique of art historical female nudes, suggesting that male painters have constructed notions of their own gender through the representation of women. Following Berger, Van Alphen describes the female nude in art history as, and I quote, completely subjugate, subjugated to the male gaze by the erasure of any threatening sign of the woman's desiring subjectivity. Bacon's portrayal of the female nude, he suggests, subvert this tradition by presenting the woman as absorbed in her own sexual being. Van Alphen holds that such images turn the tables on the relationship of viewer and object, quoting again, the viewer's only function here is to be a voyeuristic object. Now, there's a quote that has some interesting implications. Perhaps we can go into it in question time, how much an, a painting can actually occupy the role of a viewer. And all of that said, I don't actually believe that it's as simple as that. As Van Alphen also suggests, one cannot simply break away from existing discourses. So the question then becomes, how does Bacon subvert existing discourses while still deploying them in his paintings? This is Lying Figure, 1969. It's an absolutely stunning work. And if you haven't spent time with it in the show, I really think spend the next two weeks looking at it. Um, it shows Henrietta Moraes, her naked, her naked body foreshortened and sprawled on a stripy mattress in a bare and squalid room. Though distorted, this figure is undeniably female. 
Her legs are apart, her voluptuous breasts and flesh are rendered in yellow and two-toned pink paint that give the appearance of blushing skin. Her upside-down body is a tumble of curves that are exposed on a circular bed structure. And when Barbara was giving her talk before about Bacon's relationship to food, I couldn't help, in my mind, returning to this painting because my initial impression was that it was almost as though she were being served up on a plate. A hypodermic syringe, however, pierces her arm as she lies beneath a single light bulb that directs our, our gaze to her open legs and is surrounded by an orb of yellow. Cigarette butts are stubbed out on the floor adjacent to the bed. Um, and also on the left-hand the left side of the bed. Bacon denied that this image had anything to do with addiction, saying that he used the syringe, and the details on your right, um, as a way of, quote, nailing the image more strongly into reality or appearance. The syringe could also be read as a medical implement, since it is clear that Bacon frequently drew from medical images um, for his paintings. And with the harsh surrounds and light, bare light bulb of this room, this painting does actually have a clinical quality that may derive from medical images which Bacon accumulated. The figure's eyes are closed and her face is distorted and stylized. Arcs of thick white paint tracing down her nose. You can see the slash that kind of interrupts her face and doesn't really have any anatomical function. The whole image has a, a kind of mask-like quality, which recalls Picasso's Demoiselle d'Avignon. Apologies for the kind of crap image on the right there. Just pulled it offline. <laughs> um, and, but this is one among many influences. I simply threw it in in a way to reference a painter who's obviously a, a major forebearer of Bacon's and an influence in, in a number of different ways, but who had an engagement with the female body coming from a di very different position as a rampantly homosexual male. I mean, rampantly heterosexual male, sorry. <laughs> Bacon was the rampant homosexual. Um, simply by showing a nude woman lying on a bed, lying figure does actually evoke the tradition of the reclining nude. It's hard to get away from. And that nude has typically been cast as a possession of the viewer. In this painting, Henrietta reclines on a bed that doubles as a stage. With her arms above her head and the unfolding of her breasts, belly and thighs, she could easily be read as a subject of the viewer's voyeuristic enjoyment. I think in some ways she is. Yet like all of Bacon's paintings, lying figure is also quite ambiguous. It is a paradoxical image that resists any singular or conclusive interpretation, and we cannot rely solely on references to art history. While it inherits much from its art historical precedents, perhaps more so than many other paintings of the time, in fact, um, lying figure is also an exception to the art historical norm. It is a painting of a specific person rather than a merely titillating image. Bacon painted many portraits of his close friends and lovers. And although lying figure does not name Henrietta in its title or declare itself to be a portrait, this painting is surely informed by Bacon's personal knowledge of the subject. He did say quite often that he only painted those he knew best, even though he broke his own rule sometimes, particularly with that painting of Mick Jagger. Um, it is distorted rather than naturalistic, yet it conveys something profoundly personal about its subject. This is speculative because I never met Henrietta Moraes, but there are, uh, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that give you a sense of her personality. Um, it conveys a full and frank sense of embodiment. Here, Moraes inhabits her body unselfconsciously, and this is one of the ways in which the painting diverges from the art historical norm. Her upside down position with her head towards the viewer and her foreshortened body tapering away 
is quite different from the classical format of the reclining nude. This posture has implications for whether we interpret her as an object of sexual desire. We encounter her face before anything else. While her legs are tantalizingly open, her body faces away from us. The painting depicts the figure as a sexual being, yet to me it is not an invitation or a site of fantasy. By positioning the figure in this way, Bacon cuts off the implicit invitation to the viewer that paintings of the female nude have so often presupposed. The image is not sexless, but neither does it suggest that we might possess Marais. The posture is not incidental. Bacon commissioned John Deacon to take a series of photographs upon which the, the painting is modeled. Um, though with all of Bacon's paintings, other influences have been folded in. According to Henrietta, when Deacon first shot them, he did so from the opposite angle, showing her lying with her feet towards the camera. So this is the image in the top right. Um, I apologize also for the poor quality of that image. It was basically impossible to get a high quality image of Deacon's more soft porn photographs. Um, and our lovely IT people here unfortunately blocked me from accessing sites that had this image on it. Um, so this is an angle that's very sexually explicit, um, given that Deacon has focused his lens on Henrietta's parted legs. Bacon, though, had Deacon reshoot these photographs um, as originally specified and made several paintings showing this latter unorthodox posture. This colourful anecdote demonstrates that Bacon's selection of his pose was quite deliberate, though he would subsequently exploit the miscommunication and base other paintings on the first series of images. And just as an aside, perhaps a sort of unnecessary anecdote, Henrietta did recount having the first series of photographs taken and protesting to Deacon that it wasn't really what Francis was after. She subsequently, once they were reshot, she subsequently caught John Deacon selling the first round of photographs in the street in Soho for soft pornography. Um, she actually, believe it or not, forgave him after he bought her a drink. So, <laughs> different times. It's not only what this painting depicts, but also the way in which it is painted that differentiates lying figure. Moraes is painted, sorry, that's differentiating it from the art historical tradition. <laughs> Moraes is painted with slashes of white paint breaking up the unity of her body, particularly in the head and arms. The sweeping flicks and curves of paint here give a sense of turbulence and fracture. As Van Alphen has said of other paintings by Bacon, the physical distortion of the figure disrupts the wholeness of the female. The body remains active and resists becoming a commodity. Though reclining, Moraes is not passive as the nudes of history often are, though I would argue, having looked at the painting for quite some time now, there's a way in which it teeters on the edge of this. It is quite provocative and ambiguous. So Nicholas, um, in his book, has, after Francis Bacon's Synesthesia and Sex in Paint, has commented upon the gendered implications of Bacon's use of paint. He suggests that Bacon's application of paint blends together two different types of mark-making, which have gendered qualities ascribed to them. The mixing of these two codes or strategies, and I'm quoting <laughs> our previous speaker here, resist simplistically embodying any sexual identity. Bacon's portraits of women include expanses of fierce brushwork. This brushwork is, however, offset by expanses of more tender paint application. Nicholas suggests that in Bacon's paintings, and I'm quoting again, there seem to be two different registers of handling a work. 
The touches that involve the use of fabric, which we've looked at already today, can be gendered as feminine. The impasto, however, denotes masculinity." Ending quote. Whether this gendering is inherent or enculturated is a matter for debate. However, this variegated application of paint occurs in lying figure 1969, in which there are three layers used to depict Moray's body. Um, Bacon began with a yellow undercoat, which was rapidly overpainted with a fleshy pink layer using a fairly broad brush. These two layers give the overall shape of a body, and they bleed into the turbulence of the figure's head and arms, which are more complex in their coloration. However, there is a final layer, we're going in a bit much here, um, that concentrates our eye on the figure, packing all the energy of the painting into the flesh that it depicts. Bacon has pressed fabric loaded with red or orange paint down the center of the figure's body. To me, this registers as a deep blush, a rush of blood perhaps to prickling skin. It implies a sense that the figure is self-conscious, aware of being looked at. Um, Nicholas's insistence on the gender reading of these two different kinds of mark making raised some interesting points when considered in relation to the subject of the painting. The mark that Nicholas designates as feminine namely the gentle pressing of fabric, which really pulls in, all, pulls in the eye, are applied over the top of a painterly tumult, and this mark is applied using more loose and aggressive brushstrokes, which might be read as masculine. Amid the turmoil of painterly marks and gestures, there's something that really complicates our understanding of gender here. Henrietta seems to have what could only be described as a phantom phallus. When first examining this work, I found myself putting this aspect. Now, there is a pointer here, isn't there? Oh, no. <laughs> Middle red one. OK, so we're talking about this here, which in the context of the broader image has you know, a structure that does kind of give it away. Maybe it's a Rorschach test, and I'm just inherently perverse, but still. <laughs> Sorry, when first examining this, I found myself putting this mark within the painting um, into the too hard basket. I wrote about the subjectivity of the figure, her sense of embodiment. I wanted to believe that Francis Bacon was really a feminist. Um, I didn't make sense of the ambiguous gesture. After all, it occupies quite a liminal position in the painting, and what it actually is, is arguable. It's not, a resol it's not resolved or as solid as much of the rest of the figure is. And there are many marks on this canvas that serve a formal purpose and are not meant to be read as anything in particular. So, for instance, the green ball here, the strange dot that's on the foot, this, which is, you know, many would read as a shadow, but which still, they serve a kind of formal function. And we often get asked, for the time that this show has been up, we've been asked about what does this mean? And you have to keep going, it's not really what about it, what it means. It's kind of something that Bacon just said he needed there or didn't. However, um, you know, I guess arguably thinking that through this mark here could be taken as a part of that um, generalized brushwork, a splash or wipe of paint that accrues through Bacon's approach to being not so much a painter, but a medium for accident and chance. But Bacon's claims that his works came into being through action and chance were always a little overstated. It was a little bit, methinks the lady doth protesteth too much. As Tony pointed out um, in his catalogue essay for this exhibition, it is, arguable that Bacon, that it is arguable that Bacon knew exactly what he was doing, and that, and I'm quoting, like every good drunk, um, like, a, like every good cat, blah, 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 sorry, like every good drunk, a cat knows exactly how to fall. And Bacon, you know, was quite a good drunk. 
Bacon may have utilized chance as a strategy in painting, but we cannot dismiss these marks as simply formalistic gestures, or not all of them, anyway. This mark in particular is just too provocatively placed to be read as incidental and meaningless. This painting of a naked woman deliberately works against a clear representation of the body's gender. More than anything else, this is how Bacon subverts while still drawing upon the lexicon of the art historical female nude. Now, I'm not saying that this, this is really a painting of a man, just to make that absolutely clear. I'm saying this is a, a painting of Henrietta with a shadow that does seem to read to many viewers as a penis, and that that really troubles our notion of gender. This is Francis Bacon's gender trouble. So by introducing an element that completely unsettles our understanding of her as the very embodiment of femininity. This raises all kinds of questions about how Bacon saw the female body and the division between genders, and whether indeed he saw himself to some extent in the female nude. In the next painting that we'll look at, Studies from the Human Body 1975, this confusion of genders happens in reverse and a good deal more subtly. Bacon has painted a body that appears to be male, but which derives from a photograph of a woman. In this painting, the male figure, um, lying on the left-hand side of the image, adopts the same pose as Henrietta Moray's in lying figure. Now, putting them both up on the screen, and Tony said before in his lecture at the beginning of the day that obviously the one on the right is based on perhaps either the painting on the left or on the series of photographs that it's derived from. I'd just like to stress that, as usual, with most artists and with Bacon in particular, there's no real fidelity. Obviously, he's changed the way that the figures lie um, in, his, in the process of painting and that the relationship is kind of loose. But nonetheless, he did commission a series of photographs, and I think that the painting on the right, or the detail on the right, is certainly one of those that was drawn from his photographs of Henrietta. Since Bacon's paintings of Moray's antedate studies for the human body and was itself based on photographs commissioned by Bacon, this male figure ultimately derives from a photograph of a nude woman. In fact, this slippage of genders occurs in many of Bacon's paintings, and this is not the only instance where a woman's body becomes the basis of a man's body. In paintings such as Triptych 1970, the two flanking figures have been adapted from a series of photographs taken by Edward Mybridge, showing a naked woman getting into or out of a hammock. As with all of Bacon's paintings, this figure is not precisely modelled on the photograph that it derives from. Bacon's adaptations from photographs are evolutions from rather than replicas of the original. Studies from the human body shows three figures. While the figure on the left is barely a shadow, an indistinct reflection of someone with their back turned, the figure on the right is shown in profile, facing toward a central lying figure. In my reading of the upside-down posture of lying figure, I interpreted Henrietta's body as at once offered up to the viewer and inaccessible. Because we cannot see any opening in her body, the painting works against its own sense of sexual invitation. In studies from the human body, the implications of the posture change because the gender of, of the lying figure has changed. In some ways, this male body draws upon the tradition of the reclining nude, which has typically been dominated by depictions of the female. Like lying figure, the upside down face of this figure is thrust forward toward the viewer. No, sorry, going too far. Um, I've suggested, sorry. Like the earlier painting of Henrietta, this body is not passive or objectified. 
Rather, it is turbulent and distorted in the same way that Henrietta's body was in a constant deconstructing flux. I've suggested that in lying figure, Henrietta was a fan has a phantom phallus. In this painting, the phallus is an undeniable, though not overstated, part of the body. So just, we did have this lovely thing where Tony said, <laughs> has told, well, I assume I'm allowed to tell this story, Tony, because you've told it to so many staff in the past, but when, um, we first got this painting in, he didn't feel necessarily that it was a penis and that he only really sort of saw it when he was told that by JC DeCorey that we wouldn't be able to have it on bus shelter posters advertising the exhibition. <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously the marketing people know. <laughs> hmm, now I've lost my place. So, yes, it's not an afterthought is my point. It's not a gestalt or a shadow. It's really part of the body and it's painted in. Yet while legible as male, this figure is not an idealized masculine form. He doesn't have any of the Michelangelo-inspired muscularity of many of Bacon's other male figures. For example, study for, the, um, for crouching nude from the Detroit Institute for the Arts. Now Bacon, as has already been noted today, often referred back to this painting um, and he saw, I'm quoting, dual themes of athleticism and defecation in this painting. Similarly, the figure does not have the asexual allure of paintings such as Study from the Human Body, in which the man passing through a curtain into a darkened space is painted with great tactility, particularly the buttocks and his shoulder, which really have this accretion of paint that feels almost like Bacon were reaching out to touch the figure as he painted it. The figure is more ethereal um, and has a softness and translucency heightened by the use of a predominantly grey-blue palette. His face is the most heavily worked part of the body and is dominated by a set of snarling teeth or grimacing teeth with only the hint of an eye under layers of paint. The characteristic coif of hair that often appears in Bacon's self-portraits falls from the top of the figure's head, resting on, on a crumpled heap of newspaper made using Letraset. Now, this morning in Tony's lecture, he sort of set this up nicely for me. Um, but I'm not going to overstate the reading of this figure as Francis Bacon. To me, that it's, you know, it, it's a, a male figure based on a female body. It's the gender switch that's the important thing to consider. But of course, there is that biographical element in the background and the idea of Bacon representing his own relationships. Um, there are striations of white and orange paint overlaying the face, um, which Bacon created by pressing corduroy or some other fabric into wet paint and then onto canvas, remembering here Nicholas's argument about that sort of gentle pressing being the effeminate gesture in Bacon's work. This is the same process that he used in painting Henrietta, but with a different kind of fabric. The orange stripes over the eye give almost the impression of an animal looking through a wire cage at the viewer. It is difficult to read the mood of the figure from its face. With Bacon's characteristic ambiguity, it could be laughing maniacally or wincing in pain. In line with his sadomasochistic tendencies, the boundaries between pleasure and pain are blurred here. The corduroy impressions are not limited to the face. They extend across the figure's upper arm and thigh and are particularly apparent on the genitals. This layering of orange not only gives texture um, and density, but also the subtle coloration of skin. While the use of darker blue tones hint at bruised flesh, this part of the body is layered with warm color. Unlike Henrietta's phantom phallus, a kind of shadow in the background or a haunting, 
The penis is not a shadow, but a central and unambiguous part of the body. In addition to the shadow, I'm sorry, no, it is painted subtly, but Bacon underlines its presence by introducing this dark gray area of shadow underneath. It really kind of gives it form and weight and calls attention to it as an aspect of the body. In addition to the shadow, there are also a series of white dots emanating from the organ over here, which might be read as sperm. I don't want to go too much down that path, but um, many scholars have drawn analogies between paint and sperm in Bacon's work, most often in relation to the flick of paint um, or the kind of hurling that he would often kind of throw at a painting once it was completed, introducing a chance of element that risked destroying the finished painting. Here, this white mark is quite controlled. Um, it parallels other paintings in which Bacon used a series of white dots to simply demarcate a figure. So it kind of also plays a structural role in the image. Arguably, though not obviously, the adjacent body in the composition also enacts a kind of gender crossing. With exposed breasts and shoulders, this figure initially appears to be a woman standing adjacent to a reclining male nude. So we're looking at this body here now. Apart from the eerie reflection in the far left of the canvas, this guy over here, um, these two figures seem to fit a heteronormative structure of male and female bodies set in relation to one another, regardless of the kind of confusion that occurs by one occupying a sort of fairly dominant active role and one occupying a passive role. There's a whole lot of gendered art theory we could bring in there too, but for time. With exposed breasts and shoulders, this figure initially appears to be a woman Oh, standing adjacent to a reclining male nude, and we've already read this paragraph. <laughs> However, closer inspection reveals that the figure's head, enclosed in a blue and white circle with only a protruding ear, has a distinctly masculine face. This is heightened by a mark across the throat that might be read as a shirt collar or lapel, though it is quite abstract. This is not the only time that Bacon portrayed a naked body with a collar, in Three Figures and a Portrait, George Dyer's near skinless torso with a protruding spine is capped with a shirt collar and, is, and his head is likewise enclosed in a circle. Now, as Tony pointed out this morning, <laughs> it was the actor Daniel Craig, who, famous for Bond, um, the most recent Bond films, but did play George Dyer in uh, the biopic Love is the Devil. And he suggested to Tony that his face atop a female body might be that of George Dyer. Bacon's lover in the previous decade, as we all know, Dyer was the subject of many memorial paintings throughout the 1970s, and many of Bacon's paintings contain an echo of this photograph. Whether Bacon intended this to be a provocative gender-bending portrait or not, this shadow of George throws the gender of Bacon's work into doubt. There isn't really a smoking gun, but I think I did originally in my PowerPoint presentation flip this head and it's very convincing facing the other way, but I decided that was kind of cheating. I think you can see the resemblance between this jawline here, slightly more puckered lips, and this shadow here and the lips and nose of George Dyer. Anyway, whether it's concretely provable or not, this, the likeness between the profile of this figure and the photograph of George Dyer do come back to haunt me. A body that seems female has a male head, or an arguably male head. A body that is male is based on a female body. 
This implies some kind of parity between the female and the male body. More than that, it begins to enact the possibility of crossing the accepted divide between the genders. This raises an inevitable question, which has haunted the whole paper, my whole paper. Did Bacon identify with the feminine, here embodied by Moraes? It is tempting to read the transformation of Henrietta's body in studies from the human body as evidence of identification, a kind of gender colonization whereby the male body seeks to inhabit the position of the female body. But such a reading would not account for the differences between Bacon's renditions of these two bodies. Neither can be seen as a projection of the male onto the female or vice versa, because both paintings present figures in states of flux, a space between two genders, a shift from one to the other that is arrested in paint and therefore rendered permanently incomplete. Each has an identifiable gender, yet each is also infused with doubt, and the more you look, the more the doubt settles in. With something that cuts against a straightforward reading of its sex, whether it is a phantom phallus or a masculine jawline resting atop a female torso, they are always between. I want to carefully distinguish here between gender crossing that occurs in Bacon's work, which inhabit a space between genders, um, from gender swapping. This in-betweenness is really important because as Judith Butler phrased it, and I did warn you she was coming, um, it, and she phrased it 20 years ago in her classic text, Bodies That Matter, and I'm quoting, there are tacit cruelties that sustain coherent identity. The abasement through which coherence is fictively produced and sustained. Something on this order is at work most obviously in the production of coherent sexuality, but also in the production of coherent lesbian identity, coherent gay identity, and within those worlds, the coherent butch, the coherent femme. So bearing that in mind, I think it's really quite important not to assume that Bacon was moving towards being a woman. Bacon is drawing the two genders closer toward one another in a kind of complex and fairly political crossing. So these two paintings slip across entrenched divisions and avoid ever becoming entrenched in such coherent identities. Rather, they enact an exchange which goes in both directions. This exchange is never complete. It does not end with a man becoming a woman or with a woman becoming a man. And here I'm going to cheat because there is no evidence at all that Francis Bacon ever read Heine Muller. And the play that I'm going to draw this quote from is um, totally unrelated. But it just comes to mind and to me it captures some of the issues at play in my paper really beautifully. So this is from Heine Muller's 1981 play, Medea Material, in which the ancient Grecian character of Medea says, I want to break humanity in two and live in the empty middle, I, no woman, no man. There's a violence and an acceptance of gender ambiguity in, this th in these three lines that to me really speak to um, the issues that Bacon's paintings raise. These bodies are undecidable. I felt for the duration of this exhibition that Bacon's work is activated by undecidability, by things always being somewhere between materiality and dissolution, human and animal, likewise female and male. While Bacon would never have considered himself a queer artist and resisted politicizing his homosexuality, his work fulfills a certain unconscious politics. He unravels the neat division between the genders and in so doing, thoroughly undermines the tradition of the female nude. Bacon's pa paintings manifest an incoherence of sexual identity. And as again, as Judith Butler has suggested, we need to move away from the simplistic binaries of gender 
and instead embrace, I'm quoting, a complex crossing of gender identification and desire, which might exceed and contest the binary frame. Perhaps without intending it, that is precisely what Bacon's paintings do. Thank you. <laughs>